Human beings have an ambivalent relationship with water. Let's talk about water for a few moments, shall we? We drink water. We should drink more of it. Agreed? We like to look at water. Some of us enjoy swimming in water. People spend a lot of money to build houses and hotels right next to the water. For me personally, no year is quite complete without a trip to the ocean. Ocean pictures are now coming into your consciousness. Okay, here they are. I need the ocean, not just a pond, a stream, a lake, or a river. It has to be an ocean. I need to look. Well, I'm an Atlantic Ocean kid, so I need the Atlantic Ocean to be perfectly clear. I need to look out at the Atlantic Ocean and know that there is nothing other than water and fish for 3,000 miles. There's a vastness about that that really speaks to me. This past, last part of this week, Jeannie and I got away for a few days to St. Simon's Island. Ever since we moved to Georgia 10 years ago, it's one of our favorite places to go. In fact, it's one of our favorite places in the world. We just love it there. We just love it as long as the ocean stays where it belongs. And the land stays where it belongs. We agreed about that. We could not love it if it looked like this. Can you see that? That's a tidal wave of water. Let's try the next one. That one's good. There you go. We, couldn't, we would not love it if it looked like that. Water is wonderful until it kills. We count on the world being set up in such a way that the water stays where it belongs and we get to stay where we belong, a place called land. Land, fish live in the water, people live on the land, and it generally works out that way. Now, all over the world, ancient peoples told stories of giant killer floods that happened way back in the day. One of these stories has made it into Genesis 1 through 11. We read part of it this morning. Modern people have often dismissed these stories as mythical, as fantastical, impossible, but research in geology now suggests that massive ancient floods actually did happen all over the world. Here is a quote from a, a Discover Magazine story that I read. It goes like this. There is compelling evidence for many gigantic ancient floods where glacial ice dams failed time and again. At the end of the last glaciation, when was the word glaciation ever spoken from this pulpit? <laughs> At the end of the last glaciation, some 10,000 years ago, giant ice-dammed lakes in Eurasia and North America repeatedly produced huge floods with raging walls of water hundreds of feet high. In Siberia, rivers spilled over drainage divides and changed their courses. England's fate as an island was sealed by erosion from glacial floods that carved what we call the English Channel. These were catastrophic floods that took place throughout the world at roughly the same time period. So that may explain why stories of great floods surface all over the world. There are stories passed on through the generations in Tibet, among native tribes in eastern Washington and in Arizona, among peoples near the Black Sea, 
and in the ancient Near East, including the Babylonian people in the Gilgamesh epic, and then in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. I think we can learn a few things from this. One may be that the stability between the bound, of the boundary between land and water may not be what it seems. Much depends on what happens with temperatures. If it gets hot, really hot, ice melts. If huge chunks of ice melt, it can have very big effects. This is one reason why scientists are concerned that the iceberg that just broke off of the Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica, an iceberg the size of Delaware, is something to be worried about, not just if you happen to be riding a boat in that general area. Scientists have been predicting for a while that rising temperatures would melt sea ice and that it would have perhaps catastrophic effects. So that's something for us to take seriously. Another thing I think we can learn from this is that few things are scarier for human beings than waking up to see a wall of water overtaking your home, your community, your land. And so with that background, we turn to our biblical text for this morning. To me, the most important part is this line from the beginning. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. And that, listen to this, every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings that I have created. People together with animals and creeping things and birds, I am sorry that I have made them. Pause after that amazing, horrible judgment. And then, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. The Bible gives us this picture that the God who made the world so lovingly in Genesis 1 and 2 has decided to unmake the world by Genesis 6. Now why could that possibly be? Because the human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, have not turned out well. They have not turned out as God planned. We've already read through these stories already in this series. The first disobedience of Adam and Eve, the the first exile from paradise, the first murder of a brother when Cain killed Abel, it is all metastasized into a comprehensive human evil, a wickedness. Even the angels have turned bad. It says in the first part of Genesis 6 that they have become attracted to human women and have mated with them, making creatures called the Nephilim, giants of the earth. That's in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. By the time of Noah, according to the text, God has had quite enough. Humans have become thoroughly evil. Don't miss that line. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. It's a line full of superlatives. Not some inclinations of their hearts or thoughts, but every inclination. Not some thoughts, but all thoughts. Not sometimes evil, but only and always and continually evil, like they never take a break from evil. It's like one of those superhero movies in which there's a villain who is only evil all the time, never grows tired of being evil, never takes a break. But in this case, it is everyone who is only evil all the time. That's the picture that is being painted 
of humanity. It's a dark one. And so it says the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Borrowing from Greek philosophy, sometimes Christians have described God as beyond emotion. The word is impassable. A God who cannot be moved by what happens on this earth. A God like a stone-faced statue. Whatever, wherever you get that idea, that's definitely not what you get in the Bible. The picture of God that we get here is of a broken-hearted God. A broken-hearted God. A God who is definitely able to be affected by what his creatures do. Have you ever thought about that? That God might be broken-hearted when he looks on this world? This is a God in this picture who is deeply, completely, profoundly sorry that he has made humanity. I think we should take it very seriously. The text says, I will blot out from the earth the human beings that I have created. Blot them out. It's like when you start a story. Remember when you were a kid, you'd like write a story and you'd work on it for a little while and you'd say, no, this is terrible and you'd crumple up the paper and just toss it aside. It's like that, really, is how it reads. No, it's more than that. It's like when you're in a love affair and you keep all your love letters in a nice love letter box and you put it under your bed. And then when you break up, you take every letter and you tear it into tiny little pieces and you throw it in the fire. And then you take the box, because it was the love letter box, and you tear it into little pieces and throw it into the fire. The reason I can tell you that story is because I actually did that when I was 18 years old. (laughs) I was a hopeless case. I made it through met Jeannie and the rest is is wonderful but when I was 18 scholars have described what we have in Genesis 6 as an uncreation God created land and sea and air and everything was separated properly into its proper place and there were sea creatures and air creatures and land creatures and then us at the pinnacle made in God's image after God's likeness And then we turned out horrible, and then God reversed the process, and everything is undone. And so all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. It's water everywhere, water from below, water from above, water from the side, water everywhere, 40 days and nights of torrential rain, but not just rain. The the subterranean waters burst forth. The oceans get out of control. Human civilization is swept away. There's nowhere to run. There's no higher ground that you can reach. There's nowhere to hide from this water. The text says, The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. All flesh died that moved on the earth. All flesh. Birds domestic animals, wild animals, swarming creatures, and all human beings. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. We teach this as a children's story in Sunday school. How in the world do we do that? It should be banished. Unless it can be taught for what it is, one of the most epic, tragic stories in the entire Bible. It's not a cute story about animals two by two. 
It's the story of divine wrath on, on a creation gone terribly wrong. It's a nightmare story, not a children's story. And yet, I think children and others can understand the truth that is here for us. I think there is word of God here, but we have to know where to look. It helps to remember that for the ancient Jewish mind, the tendency was to believe that if something bad happened to someone, it was always divine judgment for something they'd done wrong. And that pattern, you know, sin, consequence, if you have a bad thing, you must have sinned, is very deep in the Bible, and it actually evokes controversy within the Bible itself. It's the theme of the book of Job, for example. Job suffers, and his friends say, you must have done something wrong, look harder, and Job says, I didn't. And the friends say, look harder, you wretched sinner, and Job says, I didn't do anything wrong. And they do that for 40 chapters. It's also the theme of the story of the man born blind in John 9, where everybody says he he or his parents must have sinned, and Jesus says, no, that's not what's going on here. But yet there's also plenty of times in the Bible where there's sin and then there's consequences. I think that there were indeed catastrophic great floods on the earth about 10,000 BC, that they did create massive loss of life, that they lived on in the memory of all ancient peoples in the world, and that for the Jewish people they interpreted them as judgment on human wickedness, that God was brokenhearted over what had become of humanity and God judged. So some people consider this an inconceivably horrible picture of God And I get that. And I get that until I start thinking about the evils that people do on this planet. Even now. All you have to do is read the newspaper. How about rape and torture and murder? How about every victimization of a small child that takes place anywhere on this earth today? There are 7 million plus people on this planet. How many children are suffering today because somebody is mistreating them today? I remember in seminary being very struck by reading Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. And there's a scene where uh, Ivan asks Alyosha, how does God justify the suffering of even one child on this planet? Even one isn't one case enough to raise questions about the goodness of this world or the goodness of God. There's a line that goes like this. Can you understand why a little creature, a little child, a suffering child, who can't even understand what's done to her, should beat her little tormented breast with her tiny fist in that vile place, in the dark and the cold, and weep her sanguine, meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? For the brothers Karamazov in that scene, the idea is that one victimized child should be enough to raise the wrath of God. The flood story takes us to a place in the Bible where we see a deep, divine brokenheartedness over what has become of humanity. That's not the last word in the story, but it is a very important word, and I think it is a word from God. It authorizes, it even demands that we look around enough to be brokenhearted ourselves over the human condition. 
Remember how Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He came preaching a kingdom of God because this world was not yet the kingdom of God. It was a kingdom of resistance to God. He said, blessed are those who mourn because there's so much to mourn. There's so much to mourn out there in the world that we read about. And there's so much to mourn in here in our souls, which are so often disturbed and, and, um, and not what God wants them to be. Blessed are those who mourn and are also brokenhearted because this world stands so frequently in opposition to God and God's plan and God's will. The idea that God has daily reasons to give up on us is a powerful one to me. To judge us. To say, no, I've had enough. Is compelling to anyone who has had the misfortune of encountering human wickedness at a deep level. How about social workers who go into really horrible situations on a weekly basis? How about teachers who see what's being done to the children when they're at home? How about historians who pay attention to the, uh, the great genocides of the 20th century? How about anybody who reads the newspaper? So broken-hearted judgment over our broken world is a good word from God in that it is a truthful word. But it is not the last word. It's the word before the last word. The last word begins here, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. It is as if humanity and the creation itself was saved by the skin of its teeth. It was saved through the righteousness of one man named Noah. If it hadn't been for God looking around and saying, oh, but there's Noah, that might have been it. That's the picture we get. Noah was enough to give God some hope. Just enough hope. So God saved Noah. And not just Noah, but his family. And not just his family, but some animals. And not just some animals, but enough to repopulate the earth. And so Noah built an ark, and God made provision for the survival of this world and its creatures. That's the story we are told in Genesis 6 and 7. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 8 and 9, where God makes a covenant with humanity and the creatures through Noah. We're going to think again about that theme of covenant. But for now, I invite you to think about all of us as still being in a big old ark right now. Think of us, you and me, as the, as the inhabitants of an ark. We are the fortunate survivors of a cataclysmic judgment. We look out the window and we see the carnage around us, but we're still here and we're safe on the ark. And we, will, and we are now going to be responsible for what happens when, the, you might say, the ark opens up and we engage planet Earth again. It's not a bad way to look at our human situation. If you find yourself, if we find ourselves still breathing, still blessed, and still in a relationship with God on July 23rd, 2017, after everything, after everything the human beings have done, after all of human history, and after all our own sins, all we can say is God is better to us than we deserve. 
God is better to us than we deserve. The good news is grace and forgiveness. God is better to us than we deserve. And we have work to do. We're in this ark together. Think of this church even as as the ark. And we are responsible for each other. We're responsible for one another, all of us here. And we're also responsible for others outside here. And we're responsible for the animal creatures that depend on us. And we are responsible for the planet itself to the extent that we can affect it. And we are responsible to God. To me, maybe a takeaway from this story is, might we want to go out from here asking how we can bring God some joy? How we can bring God some happiness and celebration? How we, this church, and each of us individually, can be the kind of people whose lives are so good that we make God smile. (laughs) That God can say, I'm so glad for for that community because they're living for me and they're not adding any more pain. They're bringing healing and hope and love. I think this is what Jesus meant when he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And hallowed be your name. To live a life that hallows God's name. To live a life that does God's will, that makes God smile. That's what we're supposed to be learning how to do here. And so, I ask all of us to try to live that kind of life. A life that will make God smile and people smile. A life in which we love our neighbors as ourselves. A life in which we love God with every fiber of our being. Amen? And so that is the invitation that I offer this morning. Live a life that makes God smile. Whatever that looks like by way of response today, it might mean confessing a sin where you are and saying, no more of that, I've been on the wrong road. It might mean saying you're sorry to somebody and setting things right. It might mean asking God to help you tamp down or help me tamp down my anger or frustration, whatever it is. It might mean joining the church and saying, I want to be on this ark with you all, whatever it is. Please respond now as we sing our invitation hymn. I'll be standing down at the front. Please come down and see me. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.